This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. I don't know about you, but even though there's unlimited information available online, I tend to learn best by doing things and actually getting my hands dirty. If you're interested in making the leap from screens to the land, then I've got some exciting learning events for you. I'm going to be teaching two of my favorite subjects this upcoming autumn at the Green Rebel Farm in beautiful Miravet, Spain. The first course is a weekend intensive on regenerative agroforestry designed for people who want to try their hands at a range of different tree planting and orchard maintenance skills. We'll cover the whole range from reading a landscape and propagating plants, to planning a planting project, getting trees in the ground, maintaining a growing system, and even pruning a grown forest. The best part is that all of these are based on activities to advance a real farm. The second event is a five-day deep dive into the regenerative design process, again with a focus on agroforestry. This course is designed for people who are either considering buying land or who are at the early stages of developing a site and want to ensure that they get off on a profitable regenerative trajectory. We'll work through the scale of permanence, learning to gather essential information about the landscape, vegetation, and soil. From there, we'll work through hydrological capture and restoration, planning for productive planting and reforestation, business considerations, soil health regeneration, and much more. All of this too will be taught through hands-on activities, so you leave not only knowing how to develop an effective and profitable design, but also with experience with the work and skills required to get things done. This weekend agroforestry intensive will be from Friday the 16th through Sunday the 18th of September. And the design workshop goes from Tuesday the 11th to Sunday the 16th of October. So don't start your project with digital learning alone. Come and get your hands dirty with inspiring, like-minded people and level up your skills this autumn. You can learn more by clicking at the link at regenerativeskills.com or on the link tree in the bio on our Instagram. Early bird discounts are now open, so don't hesitate. And I'll see you in the orchard soon. Welcome back, everybody, to a special episode edition of this ongoing series focusing on tree planting and agroforestry. Now, often when we think about agroforestry, we think first about food. Orchards and fruit and nut crops are certainly an important aspect of agroforestry, but so is the responsible harvesting and care of woodlands for building materials and fuel. Now, for a long time, I've admired the work of Ben Law, who's a woodsman, permaculture practitioner, and author of many books on developing, tending, and using the products that come from the woods. Ben is a wealth of practical knowledge and is a founding member of the Forest Stewardship Council. He's also worked for Oxfam as a permaculture consultant. He's also the author of The Woodland Way, a permaculture approach to sustainable woodland management. Now, Ben's Woodland House has also been featured on The World's Greenest Homes, a series of the Discovery Channel's Planet Green. And his latest book, Roundwood Timber Framing, is a full-color guide to his beautiful and traditional building techniques. This is a special episode today because it comes from the archives of one of my favorite podcasts, one that has helped to inspire me to begin my own show back in the early days. Now, since I can hardly hope to improve on my friend Scott Mann's exceptional interviewing style in the Permaculture Podcast, I reached out to him to ask if he would allow me to rebroadcast his interview with Ben, and he generously said yes. Now, Scott and I, along with our friend and colleague Gilles Cloutier from Sustainable World Radio, have teamed up to form the Regenerative Media Alliance, which is a union of independent media producers working to broadcast regenerative solutions around the world. 
So be sure to stick around until the end where I'll share some more information about this alliance and I'll give you the early sign-up information for the RMA's Professional Development Conference. Now, in this interview, Ben and Scott discuss a wide range of woodland management ideas and options like coppicing and pollarding. Ben describes some of the valuable skills and products that can be central to profitable forest management and forest-based businesses. Overall, I just really love this conversation for the mindset that comes through from Ben as he describes his deep relationship with the woodland that he stewards. And I really hope that this helps you to look at the forest in a deeper way as well. So with all of that out of the way, I am very pleased to hand things over to Scott Mann and Ben Law. If you could give myself and the listeners a bit of your biography and background, how you came to do what you're doing, and then we'll take the conversation from there. Okay. Um, how I came to be doing what I'm doing really goes back to the 1980s, middle of the 80s, and I was living in... Um, a small village close by to where I'm in my woods now. And I was involved in sort of conservation landscaping, sort of doing ponds, wildflower meadows, that type of thing. And um, kept getting these leaflets through the letterbox talking about areas the size of Belgium in the Amazon rainforest being destroyed every day. And I just couldn't really comprehend that something of that scale could be going on. So um, I guess rather naively at the time, I kind of went out there feeling I could do something about it. And um, I traveled to um, South America, different parts of the Amazon rainforest at the end of the 1980s. And although I saw some pretty awful forestry destruction, I also met some amazing people out there who had such a in-depth knowledge of the forest that um, it kind of made me see what I tend to refer to now as the pattern of the forest dweller, which is a, a different approach to managing woods and forests, certainly that we have in the UK. So I came back to England with this sort of understanding and desire to try and put in place some of those patterns I'd learned. These are patterns of long-term stewardship of one particular piece of land, so um, sort of a real, a real understanding of where the migratory species, when they come in to the forest, where you're likely to find fungi, medicinal herbs, different methods for growing food in the forest, harvesting timber, making your own structures from it. And so I came back really with that as my, my focus. and. The last 25 years has been sort of revolved around that. When I recently sat down and read the latest edition of The Woodland Way, your revised and updated version, you address permaculture in that. Where did you encounter permaculture and how did that become part of your practice? Okay. Permaculture, um, I encountered first through um, the Visionary series. We had um, um, a television series over here which there was a, a number of different visionaries outlining their sort of views on, on the planet, people like Manfred Max Neath and um, Bill Mollison. And Bill gave this uh, piece called In Grave Danger of Falling Food, and I saw that. And it kind of clicked to me that there was a real message there. And I looked more into permaculture, and having been involved over the years with different types of sort of land-based practices. I mean, I trained originally as a shepherd. I've worked on fruit farms, had done a lot of horticulture, 
and broad-scale farming. And what was lovely was permaculture kind of sort of removed all of those sort of tags of particular disciplines and looked at land as one, well, more than land, but at the time I was focused mainly on land as one sort of um, overall system that we, we can then design and work with. And so I was inspired and I fairly soon after that did a permaculture course here in the UK. I think it was the second course that was held in the UK, so quite a while ago now. And that was, yeah, very eye-opening, opened up a lot of um, thoughts for me and kind of helped weave into the ideas I already had for what I wanted to do in the woodlands back here. So, yeah, very um, key moments in my life, finding permaculture. Um, you have doing that um, design course. One of the things that I liked about your book, and this is one of the pieces that I want to talk to you when I do a longer review about it, and I will say that the only thing that, that I've read of yours other than some of the material on the web that I found was The Woodland Way. Okay. But I found, though, that as a permaculture book, I think that it's more about what the permaculture community needs in the literature and the material because it's, it speaks to me as such an authentic and honest work, because this is what you're embodying and doing. When I spoke with David Holmgren, a lot of what he suggested was that the community needs to connect people with what their personal calling is, and then have them adapt permaculture to that work, um. rather than trying to fill the same niches over and over again. And I really, I have to admit that because of where I live, in the eastern woodlands of Pennsylvania after reading your book and interacting with some other people I know who are doing woodland management and foraging, like tending to zone four, that one of the niches that I would like to personally explore is, is that idea of becoming a woodsman in the area where I live. Right. Okay. And I just liked it because permaculture seemed like a very important part of the book, but it wasn't what you were focusing on, that it was taking those ideas and applying it to what you do. Yeah, I'd say that that is very much the approach. I mean, what is kind of unique, really, I guess, in the in the situation I'm in is that I'm dealing with woodlands that have such a long-term history of management. And that management has been sort of kind of, although part, partly there's been years when it's been missed out, the skills and um, traditions of, and the craft work that goes with managing, in particular, coppice woodlands, is kind of already, a, you know, a fantastic permaculture system in its own right. So for me, it's more been a matter of tweaking that and bringing more of the human element in, and looking more at the diversity, one of uh, products that one can make, which are coming out of the woodland, but also engaging more with the improving biodiversity side of it, which maybe has always been seen as a byproduct of woodland management rather than actually focusing and designing that into how, how one works. And part of that that's of deep interest to me is one of the questions that I get is how can we use permaculture to make a living? Mm. And your material really expands on the idea of not just primary, but also the secondary and tertiary products that someone could develop from woodland management and have multiple, if you will, price points at which to interact with their community 
in order to make a living, that it's not just, well, I'm going to create poles for this and just do this, this, and this, that, you know, with the roundwood structures you can build and the idea of certain materials you can weave into fence panels, others you can split for rails for building fences. It's pretty incredible, <laughs> this diversity that you're developing. Yeah, no, totally. And I guess what's exciting about it is that there's there's always something new every year. I like the idea of, you know, although there's particular products that I make from the wood, which are either traditional or I have good regular markets from, but there's always something new that springs up and there's something you maybe I've been making for a while that one year doesn't prove so popular. And I can go back to that in a few years' time. Meanwhile, we'll make something else. So I guess I have focused very much on the materials that are useful in buildings and materials that are useful in sort of garden and farm use. But alongside that, I do get specialist requests from um, local people for, who want just something unusual made of wood, be it the other day I had a request for a chicken house and um, we made that and made a shingle roof for it. And um, the person we made it for is a, is a chicken breeder and um, they put it up on their website and now, you know, they've come back and said, can you make a load more of them? So suddenly something like that out of nowhere will come and um, we can adapt with the type of woods we've got to being quite versatile in what we make. That idea of, of making a chicken house, one of the things that I have on my list to make is a top bar beehive. Okay, yeah. Now I'm thinking about the, the coppice. I'm turning some of my property into some coppice stools. No, that's not right, is it? No, well, you could be, you could be turning it into, um, basically turning it into woodland that you're managing as a coppice system. I mean... Maybe I should explain coppice system. Is that would that be useful? Yes, if you could, because it's the techniques I think are very easy to understand, and that's where I, in trying to frame my next piece, that I got kind of caught up on. But it's creating this small woodland on my own property, thinking about how I could use round wood and coppice material to create top bar beehives rather than buying lumber was where my thought was going with it. But yes, if you could explain that. It'll be a great refresher for me and the listeners. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, coppicing is a, is a process that certainly over here in, in England we know has been going on for a few thousand years. But the basic process is with broadleaf woodland, deciduous woodland, we go in during the winter season when the leaves have fallen off and the sap is sort of gone back down because it's colder, and we cut the trees during that dormant period so it's just purely over those winter months and then when spring comes rather than the tree having died off it's like a heavy pruning the sap rises and new shoots come out now those new shoots we then grow on as a multi-stem tree until they reach a particular size that um, we need to make a particular product from so for making some of the fences we allow them to grow on for five to seven years and then cut again. For making a building, we might let them grow on for 30 years. But there's a whole um, system of these woodlands throughout the, the UK, and, and there are in different parts of the world as well, as some different parts of Europe, there's some in Japan, and I know there are a few people working way with it in the, in the States as well. So this system basically gives you a renewable supply of poles of a particular size. And the real beauty of it to me is that 
this is a process where the human element is so important in the management of the woodland. For example, I have nightjars that come into my woodlands. Now, these nightjars, they're migratory species. They come in from Africa every year and nest in the same woodland. Now, they will only nest in freshly cut areas. So if I stop cutting the coppice, the woodland will grow up into higher forest and the nightjar will have nowhere to come to. And the same applies to a lot of varieties of butterflies and a real varied amount of ground flora plants that are established with this pattern. It's kind of like a patchwork of opening up a small area, letting in the light, then that grows on and you open up another area. And I say this process is one where, where humans are positive in the system. And it's quite hard to look at designing systems where the human element is actually a really needed part to increase biodiversity. The real benefit then from the system is the byproduct is the timber that comes out when you coppice. From that, we then make this sort of range of different products, which can be as versatile as one is as a craftsman to convert the round wood into the finished product. Some of the oldest woods in the UK, we've got like Bradfield Woods in Suffolk is well known. There's records of that of monks going back a thousand years ago, coppicing that particular woodland, and it's still being coppiced today. And the beauty is that as the years have gone by, the biodiversity has just increased and increased to a recent survey on that woodland showed that it had more ground cover plants in that woodland than they could find in any other woodland across the UK. Just a, an amazing system. And there's also a, a wonderful um, social side of being a woodsman that's gone with it for over generations of people learning particular skills from particular size poles that they've then passed on. And um, it's kind of that side of it as well is a, is a real interest to me. That's very helpful. <laughs> I'd like to talk about some of that social side, but before we move to that, I was wondering about this coppicing and it being such an old system. As you are coppicing, do the, the stools that you're creating eventually die out? When you say that this one area has been coppiced for a thousand years, are those the same root systems over a thousand years, or is that this space has been replanted and managed in different ways for that time. Some of the roots, root systems are the original ones. What tends to happen in, in this particular woodland I'm mentioning, in Bradfield Woods, there's a lot of hazel, ash. And with things like the ash trees, they basically, as, as you coppice each time, what happens is the new growth comes to the outside where the sapwood would be on the tree. And the middle part eventually begins to rot away. So what actually happens is you create this outer ring. And as it gets bigger, sort of over so many hundred years, this outer ring gets wider and wider. And then what will happen is a new tree will seed in the middle of that ring and start growing again. But the existing tree sort of can spread out over a big area across sort of, you know, five, six meters over time. And there's been some, a little bit of work done as well, testing. Um, there's a, they found a very old coppice lime area in um, a particular parkland, and they've actually done tests to trace the genetic origin of it and found out that it is actually all one tree, and that they reckon is a couple of thousand years old. So 
it seems like where woodlands are coppice, the trees tend to live longer than if they're just left to grow as a standard tree. Amazing system. I think of a tree that I have, a Norway maple, that I was looking to try to reinvigorate because it was not doing so well. And one of my friends who has a background in forestry, his recommendation was to go through and to prune it heavily to remove about 30% of the limbs that were there to try to force that kind of a growth. Now, regretfully, that tree has started to split at one of the crotches from the trunk that goes up. Uh, the trunk has like seven main leaders coming off of it at about six feet off the ground, but that's starting to split. So I'm probably going to wind up dropping that tree at this point. But looking at these different ways that pruning and trimming forces this kind of youth and vigor into our trees. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that is the basis of what coppicing is doing. And certainly the the coppice that's kept on what we call a shorter rotation, in other words, the poles are grown for sort of five to ten years, tends to be a lot more vigorous and healthy than the coppice which is grown on a 30, 40, 50 year cycle. On that 30, 40, 50 year cycle, can you get furniture grade lumber from that kind of a rotation? There certainly will be amongst it. I mean, it's it's very much having a diversity of products because you always get some timber that comes out, which is, is a furniture grade timber, and then you'll get other timber that's not so good. So you've got to find uses for all of it. And therefore, one tends to find that you create markets, you create styles of furniture that reflect the materials that are coming out of the woods. It's kind of designing from what the wood is giving you rather than trying to force the design of a particular piece of furniture you want to make onto the wood. They're saying we have here is, you know, don't make a table out of a bit of wood that doesn't want to be a table. You know, make something else from it. It's kind of working with the wood and rather than trying to sort of always force our our ideas upon it. I mean, I think one thing to me as a woodsman is when I walk around the woods, I can see what's growing in the trees before I sell them. And that's by the shapes, by the patterns I can work out. And quite often there's four or five different products coming out of one stem of tree. But you've got to be able to recognize which bits to use for which. It reminds me of a question that I received at a, a live workshop Someone asked me, well, now that you practice permaculture, how has it changed your life? Like, how do you really apply this in your life? And my response was, I no longer try to conform the world around me to my goals. I conform my goals to what I can get from the world around me. And it seems kind of, you know, esoteric way to look at it, but I'm not inflicting or imposing what I'm doing on, on the world, rather, but trying to find a way that what I do works within it. Yeah, no, absolutely. That makes total sense. Time scale is one of the, the beauties I get out of working in the woods. I mean, I walk around the woods with people and they're asking me things. And generally, I'm talking in, you know, 30 years, 50 years, sometimes 100 years. And I often get people saying to me, you know, you, you think in such large time scales. But I think when you work with trees, you do think in very long time scales because obviously the lifespan and times of trees is, is far more than our lifetime and span. And therefore, you kind of are able to sort of see ahead. 
I guess for me, the woods I've got here, it's kind of like I've inherited sort of hundreds of years of previous woodsman's work. You know, my time here in the woods is is almost like a sort of flutter of a leaf. You know, all I'm doing is trying to improve the biodiversity, get the woods back and up together so they're better for the next generation. And when you're working in that way, you're working in timescales that don't, you know, there's no sort of, six-month contract you've got to reach you know it, it is all very much looking at the landscape in a very very long picture and I think doing that is is a really healthy way of kind of training your mind to be able to to think long term and think about future generations rather than just dealing with the here and now. Though I'm relatively new to permaculture relative to practitioners such as yourself and others. I've only really been doing this in a deeply meaningful way since 2010. The more that I practice permaculture, the more that my perspective is multi-generational and intergenerational. I think it speaks to some of the things that you were saying. And it makes it hard when someone asks a question, well, how do you do this? A lot of times the questions are over a growing season or up until a particular plant will bear food. And I'm thinking of, you know, my grandchildren 30 or 40 years from now, stepping back away from that long view and interacting with that short perspective can be difficult sometimes. Yeah, yeah. The other question that I wanted to ask you about the physical side of things before we move to the social, when it comes to the tools that you're using, in the Woodland Way, you mentioned using a battery-powered chainsaw. Could you speak some to that chainsaw and some of the other tools you're using? As I look to make this transition, if you will, to being a novice woodsman in the eastern woodlands, I'm looking to add some additional tools to my toolbox and wondering about some things you'd recommend. For sure. I mean, the battery chainsaw is its new technology, and it's at an early stage, but like most things with sort of battery technology at the moment, they're constantly improving. And as I live sort of off grid here, I rely predominantly on solar and a little bit on wind for my power supply here. Having a, a battery saw that I can recharge off the solar and then go out and do my cutting is obviously a huge step forward from using fossil fuels. It's also so much more pleasant from a noise point of view, from a health point of view. So, yeah, I'm really quite excited by the new battery technology coming in. Now, these saws are not good enough to go out and cut big trees with, but certainly for the small diameter coppice, they're fine. And I think in a few years' time, we'll have ones which will cope with, with bigger trees, and I think that will be, um, yeah, be great for, for all of us out in the woods. With bigger trees, there are traditional hand cross-cut saws, which are very effective. Again, like the selling any tree, it's very much getting your cuts right, which is the critical part, um, whether you're using a chainsaw or a handsaw to do that. The cross-cut saws are very, very good. Beyond that, the other main tools I tend to use here is the bill hook or the handbill, which is, again, I guess a very British tool. Um, it's kind of like a, a little um, sort of cross between, I suppose, a mini scythe and an axe. It, it's like a curved blade and... Over the years, there's been hundreds of different models developed, all for different sort of purposes in the countryside. And for coppicing, 
certainly the shorter rotation coppice, the coppice is often cut with a bell hook, but we certainly use it for snedding up. That means taking off all the side branches and shaping up the timber. And it's a beautiful tool to use and spend a fair bit of time time getting them good and sharp. And by the end of a, a sort of coppicing season, it's kind of become an extension of your arm almost. We use them for so many different things. Other tools I use a lot are things like throws and adzes. A throw is kind of like um, a piece of metal sort of sharpened with a handle on it to make it like an L shape. And we use those for splitting because we tend to split a lot of wood rather than saw it because the splitting process apprises the fibers apart rather than saws through them. And it gives you a much stronger piece of wood at the end. So we use that for making a lot of fencing for making roofing shakes, that type of thing. Little adds is again for, for splitting out and shaping timber. Side axes. Oh, I could go on. There's such there's such a such a range of beautiful hand tools for making different products that we tend to use. I went looking for a good bill hook in the United States and they're kind of hard to find here. And I think the closest thing that I was able to find was um, a tool known as the Woodsman's Pal, made here in the United States, and it kind of has a, a slightly curved edge for chopping and hacking on the front side, and then it has a, a sharpened hook on the back that you can cut smaller canes with. I'll have to ask around to some of the blacksmiths I know to see if anyone makes a bell hook or would consider making one. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there will be. I mean, there was, I mean, I know, <laughs> I know of a, there was a blacksmith from, from Wales who made very good billhooks who settled in Oregon. May still be around, a guy called Matt Spears, who, who was very good. So he might, he might have some good patterns to follow. But, you know, any good blacksmith who can make tools, as long as they've got the, the pattern there, I'm sure they can make a fine billhook. This is really just a personal question I have from me because I'm interested very much in the, in the traditional forestry skills and tools. How did you learn how to handle some of the tools that you do. Is there still a tradition within Britain and the United Kingdom to teach that? Or was it something that you had to seek out and find instructors for? It was very much something I had to seek out and find instructors for. I think now there's, there's a great change in that. With actually, there's more people sharing skills and knowledge now. And this is, again, a very much a a permaculture approach to how people are working. Traditionally, anyone who had a, a real woodland skill, maybe they were um, a hurdle maker or basically a thatcher, making thatching spars for thatchers who were thatching roofs, they kind of held on to that skill and would pass it maybe through their family, but very rarely pass it anywhere else. It was kind of this sort of, this is my livelihood, if I pass it on to you, you'll know how to do it, and therefore that will threaten my livelihood. And I, I remember going out about 25 years ago to try and actually learn some skills off some of these older guys who were still out working in the woods. And I remember going to see a hurdle maker, and he, he was out in the woods making hurdles out of hazel. A hurdle is like a woven panel that um, was traditionally used for keeping sheep in penned. But nowadays, it tends to be used as a garden fence, very attractive sort of woven panel. And um, he was making these. And I, I would turn up, and I offered to help him. But he said, no, no, he didn't really need any help. And he'd chat to me. 
but he would never, ever do any work while I was there. He would stop work if I turned up. He didn't want to show me anything. And I think though that is very much the sort of the past generation of woodsmen, really, that um, had that kind of fear of sharing their skill in case it would affect their livelihood. Whereas, fortunately now, I think we're at a time where we know how important it is to give people these skills. We need to be sharing them. We need to be passing on land-based life skills and how to make things that we need. And therefore, I guess it's partly what I do myself, but more and more people are, are out there sharing the, the skill of how to use these particular tools and how to make a good quality roofing shake or how to make a, a beautiful chair out of a, out of a piece of coppice timber. I'm really glad to hear that this is expanding and that there's a possibility for more people to get involved so that we can keep these skills and traditions alive and also just to be able to use them in our practices. Part of my interest in this is that several of my past guests are people who are building without electricity or petrol of any kind. And in doing so, they're trying to figure out how to do this work. And a lot of it is they're, they're finding that they have to recreate it as they go because it's just not available or the people who know it aren't teaching it anymore. And I'd like to have more of this out there because it's being able to go into the woods and do the work and still be able to hear the birds sing and not to scare them away. Yeah, no, totally. I, I mean, I was chatting to an ex-apprentice of mine, Richard, and he, he does a lot of chair making out in the woods now. And he was describing making a rocking chair he just made. And, you know, I sent him, well, what what you really enjoy about it most? He said, what I enjoy about it most is that there's no glues, there's no, there's no fixings, there's no need to visit the hardware store. I can start with a log in the wood and I can walk out of the chair and I never have to leave the woods. And I think that's just a, a privilege of a way to work and be able to start by selling your tree in the environment you're living or working in and then to go through the whole process of turning it into the finished product and being able to do that without the need to think, oh, I need to go and buy some nails or some screws or, you know, it's, it's a good feeling. And as you mentioned one of your apprentices, what about that social side of the work that you're doing, of being a woodsman? Yeah, the social side is, is really, really interesting how it's developing. I mean, I think there is a really good sort of renaissance of traditional crafts and woodland management in the UK now, and not just traditional crafts, sort of modern crafts, things we realize we need now. I mean, there are products made out of the, the poles that come out of the coppice woodland that we maybe 30 years ago, I don't think there were people in England making yurts out of coppice poles. Now there's lots of people making yurts. So these are sort of products that, again, the coppice wood can be used for. So it's not just all traditional, there's modern ones too. But the social side is, is interesting. I mean, for me, I... I feel it would be totally wrong not to be passing on and sharing what I'm doing to other people. I'd be, at the end of the day, there's a limit to the amount of years that I'll be able to go on doing this. And it, it's great to be passing it on to young people who are so enthusiastic to do it. I mean, at the moment, I have two apprentices and I take on two every year. And they spend 
gives you about um, 11 months with me and they live in the woods and by the end of it they go off and um, start on a woodland of their own now what's been nice around the area where I am in the um, in Sussex in the southeast of England is that over the years a large number of those ex-apprentices have settled in the area so there's a good network of people who've got these skills in the area who then if a big project comes up whether it's it might be a um, a building project I've got on out of Ramwood or it might be a large order for a fencing pro- project then there's a you know there's a network of people to call upon and the sort of I guess sort of this group of sort of ex-apprentices they all see each other socially as well um, work together a bit so we we kind of got this little woodland community that goes on within the area which is which is great and similar ones of those set up you know in, in different parts of the country where people are using these skills I think if you if you work in the woods and you coppice and you make things from the woods you immediately kind of connect with other people doing similar things. So, yeah, it's um, the social side of it is good. And, you know, it's not to say that there isn't the odd, um, the odd social party that goes on in the woods as well. I think about how, as you do more and more of this work, you you find the things that are, are tasty when they become fermented and you wish to share them with your friends. Absolutely. You got it. <laughs> At the moment, it's... Uh, it's spring here, and um, well, just at the beginning of spring. So, and spring's coming quite early. And in the moment, the the birch trees, we tap the sap of the birch tree and make a wine from it. So we're doing that at the moment. We're tapping the trees now. The lovely thing about that is it's a it's quite a quick wine. So in six months' time, by the time we sort of get to the autumn equinox, it's ready for drinking. And then at that time of the year, we're we're pressing the cider. The apples to make cider, which then are ready at this time of the year. So there's a, there's a nice sort of sequence, even within what we sort of harvest and ferment as well. You get to live in and enjoy those patterns of nature. Absolutely, yeah, very much part of it. In our time together, I think we've covered everything that I wanted to talk about. Is there anything else that you'd like to add to the conversation for the listeners before we bring it to a close? I guess I'd just like to sort of just mention a little bit about the immenseness of, of, of working within a woodland and the kind of magic of being out in, in nature, even in an area where I am, which is the southeast of England is, is the most highly populated part of England. And, you know, there's, there's certainly probably not got anything like the kind of space you've got maybe around you in different parts of the States. But even within here, just being out in that woodland, you can touch into something unique, ancient, and uh, a sense of wilderness, which can be there, you know, right on your doorstep, even on the edge of cities. I know people who work in woodlands on the outskirts of the cities, and and they can still kind of find that place there. Our woods are amazing places, and they're so versatile and, and so diverse, and there's there's so much that they can offer us and that we can, we can make from them as well. And yeah, they're just the best place to hang out and work. So they're my inspiration. And um, yeah, I just like to share that with everyone and hope that everyone gets out there and appreciates them more. Go out, reconnect with nature, do good work, and 
enjoy it all. That's it. That's it. A very special thanks to my good friend Scott Mann at the Permaculture Podcast for allowing me to rebroadcast this wonderful interview. I really encourage you to check out his show if you haven't already at thepermaculturepodcast.com where you can find over 10 years worth of interviews with the biggest names in permaculture and environmental work. Now in the future, we'll be creating more episodes where the two or all three of us with Jill Cloutier as well will sit down to talk about what's happening in our respective corners of the world or as a roundtable to discuss listener questions. I already recorded a really fun session with Scott that will be coming out soon, so stay tuned for that. We'll also be featuring some of the outstanding episodes from each other's show, just like today every so often, and even doing a couple of guest-hosted episodes on one another's podcast from time to time, and I'm really excited for that. If you're a producer in the regenerative media space, such as a podcaster, streamer, or video content producer, we would love to hear from you. Soon we'll be announcing dates for the RMA Professional Development Conference, which is going to be online this October. I'll be posting more information on how to get involved when we open up requests for presentations in July, and registration, which later opens in October. Then, at the end of the year, to close things out and to shine a light on the people and the projects that made a real difference in 2022, in December, we will award the RMA Prize, and more information on that when nominations open up in September. If, along the way, you have any questions about the Regenerative Media Alliance, these calls, the conference, or the prize, feel free to get in touch with me directly at info at regenerativeskills.com. And that is our show for this week. Remember to keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and the Regenerative Media Alliance and I will be right by your side along the way. <laughs>